Good morning. Uh, my name is Joe Bertogli. Uh, I'm uh, the attorney for Mr. Kendrick Page, who was one of eight uh, defendants charged in a one-count conspiracy uh, uh, stemming uh, beginning in 2001 through and including the date of the indictment, which was in 2019, end of November of 19, um, uh, which spanned at least three states, Iowa, Illinois, and Texas, if not more, based upon uh, allegations relating to uh, uh, a single count of conspiracy to distribute um, various controlled substances, uh, along with other um, uh, alleged uh, uh, law violations in those separate states uh, involving uh, uh, drug distribution. Um, uh, on a, uh, Mr. Um, uh, uh, Page, along with two other co-defendants, um, Mr. Armstrong and Mr. Davis, um, uh, proceeded to trial, and after a seven-day trial, uh, uh, all, all three defendants were convicted on a single count uh, of the conspiracy uh, uh, indictment. Um, uh, Mr. Uh, Page was uh, uh, subsequently sentenced to uh, uh, 340 months, uh, along with 10 years supervised release. Um, uh, on appeal, uh, I've raised uh, uh, five issues, including uh, um, the uh, suppression of a, a wiretap, um, the uh, uh, failure to give a uh, multiple versus a single conspiracy instruction as requested, and three uh, um, uh, sentencing issues having to do with uh, uh, the application of the guidelines, as well as uh, the last issue uh, um, having to do with the substantive reasonableness of his sentence. I'm going to focus this morning, based on my limited time, um, on, the, on the suppression issue. Um, Mr. Uh, Tyndall is going to argue the common issue that he and, he and I have in, uh, on appeal here, which is the uh, uh, single versus multiple conspiracies instruction issue. So I'm going to leave that uh, uh, argument to his uh, capable hands. Um, uh, first of all, with regards to the uh, wiretap um, uh, uh, suppression issue. Um, in this case, uh, on two different occasions, the government applied for and received orders of, uh, to intercept uh, um, uh, telephone calls relating to one target telephone. Uh, I've raised uh, uh, on appeal here uh, three um, uh, issues relating to the appropriateness of the, uh, uh, of the order uh, granting the wiretap and the execution of the wiretap. Uh, first of all, uh, the, uh, uh, Mr. Page asserts that uh, there was insufficient probable cause for the issuance of the wiretap to begin with uh, because of, uh, of the uh, failure of the government to uh, delineate the uh, uh, relation of his activities or use of a, the target telephone uh, that uh, was registered and owned by a Simone Buchanan in Illinois. Um, the, uh, um, uh, why wasn't the, why wasn't the buy, excuse me, why wasn't the buy that was arranged uh, with uh, Mr. Page sufficient to show that there was a, a basis for having uh, a belief that there was additional evidence to be obtained through the wiretap? Are you talking about the, um, uh, a buy between Mr. Page and whom? Um, it was an informant. Uh, I believe that there was a half-pound uh, meth purchase. And where that was that in Illinois or was that in Iowa or Texas or? Well, sir, I'm not exactly certain. I may, okay. I, right. may I may have the facts incorrect, but I believe there were uh, some transactions or at least a transaction that had been documented prior to 
the seeking of the wiretap. Am I incorrect on that? You can tell me. Um, I, I would have I will to stand uh, corrected. I would have to uh, assert that the, that 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 wasn't correct because the the uh, uh, my recollection of the uh, vast discovery and the evidence presented at trial was that uh, any. Uh, transactions between Mr. Page uh, and or others occurred um, either historically um, uh, way back in 2001 and 2002 um, uh, in the state of Louisiana, uh, Texas, uh, and then uh, after he'd moved to, uh, um, uh, to Burlington, Iowa, um, there was uh, um, uh, basically um, uh, uh, other co-conspirators that uh, testified about their uh, transactions that involved uh, transactions with uh, uh, with Mr. Page. Uh, well, but I, I want to ask you. I wanted to follow up um, on the chiefs. I have the same notes. A little different that there was. Um, I guess there, the it was with an informant, and it talked about the number twenty five hundred dollars or twenty five hundred, which may have been a reference to a deal taking place the next day. Now I don't know that Page actually sold the drugs himself, um, but they got that directly off the confidential informant's phone. Uh, from the from the subject or target phone that they got the wiretap on. Yes, I think I uh, 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 detailed the substance of that uh, um, uh, telephone. Um, uh, either it was a text or conversation. Um, uh, I don't think it was a recorded conversation. I think it was a text or or um, uh, between Mr. Page and. Um, I'll identify him as the confidential store, source number six um, um, that talked about the 2,500 and the 2,000. Um, and uh, uh, I think I talked about that. Let, I set it out in detail on pages 16 and 17 of my brief. Um, 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 and I said that, doc, that, that the uh, uh, agent Highland uh, testified at the suppression hearing that that telephone call involved discussing Pending methamphetamine transaction, but if you actually look at the at the uh, uh, at, at the guts of the of who said what, um, um, uh, there's no mention of uh, of uh, drugs. There's no mention of any any sort of code name for drugs um, that that has been alleged uh, previously in the uh, uh, in the application for the search warrant. And uh, that may be true, but I think the next day, as I recall, that that there was a. And again, I don't remember whether it involved Mr. Page personally, but that, that there was a twenty-five hundred dollar drug transaction that happened the next day. Which wouldn't that? I mean, even if you don't discuss it in the text, wouldn't that provide enough for probable cause for for the wiretap? Well, um, I don't believe so because uh, I don't believe there was any evidence that Mr. Page was involved in any drug distribution the next day with regards to uh, uh, CHS uh, number six. Um, and um, um, the, uh, um, as, I, as I recollect it, there wasn't any testimony either at the suppression hearing or at the trial about, about that uh, transaction occurring or what the details of that transaction were. So, um, and I may be mistaken, but it, and, and I'm sure that uh, um, um, uh, the government will uh, point that out if I am. Um, uh, but moving on, um, I, I don't believe that the, that the applications did, did uh, have enough uh, uh, specificity to, uh, to uh, um, uh, comply with the requirement uh, underneath the code section having to do with wiretaps to, uh, to, to, to form the basis of, uh, of the uh, uh, probable cause. What was missing? What would you say was missing from it? 
Well, there was the what was missing was uh, um, uh, was any any real uh, uh, statements or or uh, 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 in the affidavit that had to do with uh, uh, Mr. Um, uh, Page's connection to the target telephone number that uh, that belonged to Simone Buchanan and his use of that. Um, um, uh, other than this cryptic phone conversation uh, that. Uh, um, uh, Justice Strauss has, uh, has has brought up that's contained in my brief. That's really the only thing that that, that exists. Um, so that's what was missing is is, uh, um, uh, is anything that would support um, uh, the reason to uh, uh, to obtain a uh, intercept uh, on that target telephone. Um, the uh, uh, minimization and and the necessity requirements. I believe I've set out uh, um, uh, minimization. I think the court misinterpreted um, uh, what. Uh, what we were presenting as a result of the 9,000 phone calls that were intercepted and the phone calls we thought were not minimized. Um, I set that forth in a suppression exhibit. Um, and then the uh, uh, necessity, again, I don't believe that it was uh, necessary um, uh, that the necessity requirement was met. Thank you. I see my time is up. Thank Chief, you. could I ask one, one additional question? Yes. Um, so I just want to ask quickly about the minimization. Um, that is a problem. I'm going to ask the government about it. I think that some of the calls were, were not properly minimized, a small proportion of them. My question for you is, would the good faith exception to the warrant requirement apply to the minimization requirement um, in the statute? Uh, I don't believe so. The good faith defense, yeah. Yeah, no, because obviously this is a, uh, the good faith defense has to do with, uh, um, with the um, reasonable reliance upon Upon the um, uh, the fact that the agent was complying with the law uh, at the time that the uh, alleged violation uh, or failure to uh, meet the requirements of the wiretap statute occurred, I believe that uh, uh, that it doesn't apply because it was the government's own actions, not the actions of somebody else, that uh, that would have caused that uh, uh, violation. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Petoglu. Mr. Tyndall. Uh, may it please the court. Uh, my name is Eric Tyndall, and it's my honor to be here representing uh, Breon Armstrong. As Mr. Bertogli uh, discussed, um, the focus of my argument here today is going to be on the uh, theory of defense instruction, the multiple conspiracies instruction, uh, which we had requested in this case. It's long been held that defendants have the right, whether it's a due process right or a compulsory process confrontation right, uh, to present their theory of defense. And uh, this circuit has held uh, that um, the theory of defense instructions uh, are mandated to be uh, given where there is some evidence to support that instruction. Uh, consistently, this circuit has held that the evidence does not have to be strong, and in fact, in some cases, can be in conflict with uh, the defendant's own evidence. Don't we also have authority to the effect that if there's uh, a substantial amount of evidence pointing to a single conspiracy, that the district court has the discretion to deny the multiple conspiracy instruction? Absolutely, that's true, uh, Judge Smith. Um, and uh, Burris is an example uh, of that. 
But in, in Burris, what's interesting is that uh, the court, although the district court, although it did not give a uh, multiple conspiracies instruction, it did modify the underlying conspiracy instruction to at least allow the defendant to argue it. So although uh, certainly defendants are entitled to the specific language of the instruction they're requesting, if there is some evidence that is consistent with the law, uh, the defendant should receive the evidence. And there is no question in this case that multiple conspiracies was at the heart of the defense. It was discussed uh, from opening through cross and through closing. And I think that there was, certainly... Was there, was there any inability of the part of the uh, defendants to argue for to the jury about the existence of multiple conspiracies? Well... I did the best I could here, Judge Smith, with the existing conspiracies by saying the defendant wasn't part of this conspiracy. But I think, as the circuits pointed out in uh, Christie, uh, the defendant's entitled to have the jury's attention directed uh, in a way that's consistent with the law, which is the multiple conspiracies instruction that was requested here. And especially in a case like this where... Um, Breon Armstrong and uh, Mr. Davis and others who testified came from the same general area of Louisiana. They were associated uh, by geography and by uh, familial relationships. And so in that scenario, I think the uh, defendant should have the opportunity to point to the multiple conspiracies instruction to show that just those relationships alone aren't enough. And that's backed up by additional evidence in this case in which, if you look closely at some of the uh, wiretap uh, discussions that happened, uh, it was clear that uh, Mr. Armstrong and Mr. Page weren't on the same page uh, in this case on a number of situations. And so there was uh, at least some evidence uh, to suggest that they were doing their own thing. Um, certainly there's uh, evidence that the government has focused on that they were in a single conspiracy. Uh, but the issue here is shouldn't we allow the jury to be able to assess the facts as it applies to that defense? And really, that's, uh, Priest Corn is, a, is an excellent example of that because in Priest Corn, uh, there was a sufficiency or an insufficiency challenge which was uh, rejected. Um, but it was reversed because the fact of the defense in that case, which was buyer-seller, should have been given to the jury to decide. And we'll Counsel, I want to follow up on this point, which is you, you noted they're all from the same area. They now live in the same area as well. Uh, they interact with each other quite a bit. And my understanding, you brought up, you brought up Armstrong and Page, but my understanding is, is Page directed Armstrong, or at least the evidence showed this, uh, in terms of trips he made, in terms of particular relationships he made. And so I just wonder whether all of this combined uh, gives good reason for the district court not to give an instruction that might have been confusing to the jury. Um, Judge, I, I certainly appreciate that that's certainly one way to view the evidence. But there are alternative theories uh, that can be argued. And, and the challenge isn't whether uh, the... There's so much evidence concerning uh, the government's theory that the instruction shouldn't be given. The challenge is, is there some evidence? 
and it can be weak evidence to support the defense. And there was at least sufficient evidence of that to give the defense. Certainly, if we were here, I, I argued a sufficiency of the evidence uh, argument in my brief, but I'm not really here to emphasize that. Because I think the real issue is, shouldn't the jury have been able to understand that under the multiple conspiracies law that's uh, good in this district? I'll reserve the balance of my time for rebuttal. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Tyndall. Mr. Leffel. Good morning, uh, Your Honors. William Leffel, I am the attorney for Tristan Davis. The issues that I had raised in my brief are not questions of law. They're, they're fact-based. With <clears throat> respect to the sufficiency of evidence, that is set out in the briefs, uh, and I will not argue that further in the five minutes that I have. So I'd like to focus my uh, argument regarding the, um, the application of various guideline enhancements for um, regarding the, the weight of the drugs, the premises enhancement, and the denial of the request that I made that Mr. Davis be assessed a minor role uh, in this offense. I think that this all comes down to a question of just how deeply was Tristan Davis involved in the uh, conspiracy that the uh, government presented the evidence of? Was the district court <clears throat> clearly in error in finding that he was deeply involved? Finding that he had been deeply involved for a almost 20-year period of time informed the court's decisions as to whether it was reasonably foreseeable that uh, other amounts of uh, methamphetamine and crack cocaine should be attributable to him, other than amounts that he directly delivered himself, which I think were only a few grams, and whether the premises enhancement should apply to him when the evidence uh, that was secured in the search warrant and through the wiretaps uh, did not show, did not point to him directly, uh, no drugs were found, uh, pointed to criminal conduct perhaps of others, uh, co-defendants in, say, storing some ice methamphetamine on top of a uh, refrigerator, which <clears throat> Mr. Davis would have thrown in the bushes, um, and um, the uh, receipt of a package which may or may not have concealed, uh, may or may not have uh, had some drugs in it when the search warrant was ex uh, executed, or drug residue, excuse me. What could the now, district court make of uh, language that Davis, Davis's house was used as a base of operations? They was used for the, uh, yes, yes, Your Honor, that was a uh, finding that was made. Uh, I am arguing, of course, that that was clear error. Uh, there were never dry, any drugs whatsoever. What in, the, what in the record would tell us that, that, that the district court 
clearly erred in reaching that conclusion? Yes, the standard of review is clear error for all the points that I bring up. Uh, in addition, Your Honor, uh, since I'm arguing that since, since um, he was not deeply involved and there was a lack of what was, would have been reasonably foreseeable, then with respect to the weight, the record, uh, I'm arguing the record definitively and firmly illustrates that the district court made a mistake in attributing over 10 pounds of weight to him. Now, at several points in the uh, government's brief, they argue, and I, they argue this several times, that you should find him, that the court should find him deeply involved because he was a member of the conspiracy from the beginning. He was involved in bringing drugs from California. He collected a drug debt, worked extremely closely with uh, Page. The wealth of the evidence that the government presented at trial actually cut against that. They presented the testimony of others such as David Davis and Wilbur Bowers, who had been involved on a regular basis since the beginning of the conspiracy. And as Mr. Davis said, he'd never seen Tristan do anything wrong. He really didn't know what Mr. Davis did. With respect to Mr. Bowers, also a lack of any specific drug dealing activity. And Mr. Bowers said he didn't deal. He really didn't know what the lower level people uh, did. So if anything, Mr. Davis was lower level. In the 10 seconds I have left, I'll just quickly direct the, uh, address the drug delivery. Uh, I would say that that uh, controlled payoff was, as shown on page 439, um, you had one guy go, uh, you had the Philip Jones go to um, the house of Mr. Page, expecting to find Mr. Page there. He went there as directed by Detective Plain. Uh, when he didn't, pay, didn't find uh, Page there, as the transcript uh, exhibits 36 and 37 shows, he just started handing over money. Uh, I would not characterize that as a drug payoff. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Mr. Leffel. Ms. Glasgow for the government. Thank you, Your Honor. May it please the court, my name is Andrea Glasgow, and I represent the United States in this case. Beginning first with the pretrial issues, uh, part of this case involved a Title III application to the Central District of Illinois to Chief Judge Darrow over there. That application and affidavit, both the initial application and affidavit and the renewal, contained extensive probable cause about the investigation of Mr. Page and his associates. It did contain information about controlled purchases made through the use of the target telephone number one. Now, information contained both in the affidavit and at trial was that Mr. Page was very careful about his phone calls. He was instructed others to be careful about their use of the phone. So there was not a phone call that said, yes, Mr. Jones, I would like to set up a half-pound methamphetamine purchase with you tomorrow for $2,500. Those words were never said. That's true. There was a phone call which set up the deal, and according to the CS, who was Mr. Jones, who testified at trial, that deal then took place the next day based upon his communications with Mr. Page. He, in fact, testified at trial, and it is contained in the affidavit that during the summer of 2019, leading up to the application in September of 2019, there were multiple controlled purchases set up through the Page organization. Those phone calls, or excuse me, those buys would take place by him communicating with Kendrick Page, 
On occasions, he would send someone else. That, again, is outlined in the affidavit. Uh, that aff application and affidavit was reviewed by myself, the supervising United States attorney. That application and affidavit was then sent and reviewed by the Deputy Attorney General and was reviewed by Chief Judge Darrow in the Central District. Then again, at suppression, it was reviewed by Chief Judge Jarvie, or then Chief Judge Jarvie in the Southern District of Iowa. At all four levels, both review by two federal prosecutors and review by two federal judges, everyone has found sufficient probable cause and necessity, which I'll address a little in a moment. Well, would you go ahead and... I, I... I don't think there's a lot of is that much controversy on the existence of probable cause. Okay. Would you go ahead and address the concern for minimization? Yes, Your Honor. Uh, turning then to minimization, Judge Strauss had uh, brought up whether good faith applies to minimization. One point I'd like to clarify, and I think it, it got a little confused at the suppression hearing, but I think Judge Jarvie um, eventually saw what we were discussing, is I think part of the confusion initially is that the phone calls the way that the FBI recording system takes place is that recorded phone calls are a continuous auto audio recording. So when minimization occurs, the agents essentially press a stop recording button, they wait, and when they go back into spot check, they press start again. So the audio portion that is in fact recorded is continuous. But when you look at the call sheet, you can see that a call total time of a call would be, for example, 15 minutes, and the recorded time would be, for example, eight minutes. Now, when you listen to the recording, you're not going to hear big gaps of time because they simply stopped recording. There's not dead air. And I think that was part of the confusion that was cleared up during the testimony of the agents at the suppression hearing, that of the calls that Mr. Bertogli thought were never minimized, in fact, 203 of them were minimized. Several of the calls were discussing, in fact, criminal activity. Um, and importantly, the difference, the, the requirement of minimization is just that. It's minimization. It's minimizing the interception of contact that does not involve criminal activity. It is not a prohibition against listening to all contact that does not involve criminal activity. And the, the standard of review is obviously taking an objective assessment of an officer's actions in minimization in light of the facts and circumstances then known to him and determine whether the officer's actions were reasonable. So the assessment here... Counsel, can I, can I just interrupt you? And, and it, gets, it gets to the root of my question I asked the opposing counsel, which is, my understanding is that there were a real minority, like we're talking about maybe less than 1% of the calls, that at least there's some dispute about whether they were properly minimized um, and whether, whether the officers followed their own procedures. Am I wrong about that? Your Honor, by my calculations, I have, of Mr. Bertogli pointed out 230 calls that were not minimized according to him. Of those calls, 203 were in fact minimized. Several of the calls were under three minutes in total length duration, and the length of the call duration includes like some dead air time when it's ringing. Um, and the minimization requirement put in place by Judge Darrell was minimized within the first two minutes of contact. Uh, so it's our argument that some of those three-minute calls would have, in fact, been within two minutes of contact. And several of the calls, so of 27 calls, several of them, which is outlined in our suppression hearing exhibit, in fact, discuss criminal activity. And so the, 
we do not concede that there was any improper minimization, but to the extent that there may be interceptions that were not related to criminal activity, that doesn't equate to improper minimization because the role of the agents was to listen to the conversation and determine whether criminal conduct was being discussed. That was made difficult in this case by the fact that Mr. Page was routinely using both his wife, his girlfriend, his nephew, who was in fact Breon Armstrong, another of his nephews, his cousin, James Miles Punkin, who's discussed um, extensively about his involvement, the fact that he was routinely using friends and close family members, including those who are in his immediate vicinity, made it difficult for them to say, okay, this is a call with his wife, we don't need to listen. And so that's part of the assessment then, is based upon the totality of the investigation, what's been intercepted to date, the officer has to act reasonably in determining whether this call or particular parts of a call are a discussion of criminal activity. Well, let me ask you this. So if there's a total of, I think there were 10,000 calls, and let's say some, some of those 30, I think you said there were 30 of them that might have fallen in the three-minute, et cetera, that are a little bit unclear. But even if the government, even if the agents made a mistake as to those 30, is there a substantial compliance type requirement or standard that applies in this area, or is it like strict liability? You mess up on the minimization, the wiretap is out. No, Your Honor, I believe it is substantial compliance. And, and again, the term minimization, I think, in itself indicates that. The statute and the term, it's minimization, it's not no listening whatsoever. And I think that's the part where, too, the reports to the court, the reports to Judge Darrow in a timely interval, interval and then the process of uh, both my meeting and my memorandum to the agents, their requirement to participate in those or view them, their requirements to review the affidavit and the application prior to any participation in interception. All of that is done in an attempt to make sure that minimization is done appropriately. But again, it's minimization. And the two-minute or the three-minute, that's not a statutory issue. It's more of these are efforts put in place to attempt to make sure that we are complying with the statute, which again requires minimization, not a total denial of ever listening to something that's not criminal-related. And again, the, the standard is whether the officers acting based upon their knowledge at that time, whether they were acting reasonably. Turning then to the trial issues, uh, it's the government's position that the, limit, or the instruction on multiple conspiracies really is a sufficiency argument in this case. The evidence at trial was very consistent, as Judge Jarvie noted. The conspiracy involved consistent players, consistent participants over approximately 20 years. Witnesses testified, consider, including David Davis. Um, David Davis was a witness who testified that he had grown up in Burlington with Mr. Page. They went to high school together, and they began dealing drugs not long after they graduated high school in the early 2000s. He testified that Mr. Page, in fact, told him uh, that he, Mr. Page, had brought up Tristan Davis, who's often referred to as Trey, from Shreveport, Louisiana, to deal drugs with them in an effort to... Uh, insulate himself so that Mr. Page was not dealing directly with so many customers um, and having liability himself. That testimony was then corroborated and consistent throughout the other testimony and throughout the wiretaps. Wilbert Bowers was another witness who testified that he grew up in Shreveport, Louisiana, that Mr. Page recruited him to come to Burlington, Iowa to sell drugs for him. 
the testimony was consistent that this conspiracy started with the distribution of crack cocaine in the early 2000s, and that by around 2015-2016, the conspiracy had shifted to also distributing ice methamphetamine. Keith Nash testified... The, was the evidence such that the players all stayed the same, even though they shifted the, the product? Yeah. Yes, you know, one of the arguments that was made was that Breon Armstrong, this wasn't a single conspiracy because Breon Armstrong was approximately 20 or 21 at the time um, and obviously would not have been initiating this conspiracy when he was born. The government does not argue that. But the core group of participants, Mr. Page, Trey, Tristan Davis, uh, there were several others, including uh, James Miles, often referred to as Punkin, Alfonso Edmond, a charged co-conspirator, often referred to as Money or Big Head, all of those players were consistently involved over the time frame that was included. Well, given, the, given the length of the time frame, uh, isn't it conceivable that there could have been multiple conspiracies involving the same persons where the, the, the conspiracy ended for some period of time and resumed, or is that considered the same conspiracy? Your Honor, I think as a theoretical matter, it is possible. I think it's not consistent with the evidence presented at trial. The evidence presented well, at trial... The possibility trial, of it, why isn't that sufficient to enable the defense to get its preferred instruction to the jury? Because the initial inquiry, Your Honor, is whether it's factually supported. So not whether it's a theoretical possibility, but whether the evidence presented at trial supports that that was factually what occurred, and there was no evidence whatsoever that there was any more than one conspiracy. And in fact, none of the defendants, Mr. Page nor Mr. Armstrong on this appeal, have in fact pointed to any evidence that there were distinct conspiracies. This was one group of core individuals. Yes, members were added. Uh, Breon Armstrong was very young. Um, he was 20 or 21, as I suggested at the time. So he came in much later. That was what the evidence showed. Frederick Reed also testified at trial. He testified that he was also recruited from Shreveport and came up. Uh, Alfonso Edmond, the charge, another charge co-conspirator, was his uh, brother's father and had recruited him to come to Burlington. And so the evidence certainly was that members were being added, but that the activities of the group the methods of the group, the leadership of the group, all was very consistent over 20 years. And Judge Darby addressed that uh, somewhat in his ruling. And he said the length of time is the, the one factor that would give him pause. But he pointed to the trial evidence, which shows that even over this length of period of time, even over 20 years, the evidence and the witnesses consistently showed that this was an organized group with the same membership, the same methods of practice, Yes, they evolved somewhat, but the core methods of practice didn't change. And one of the pieces of evidence that supported that was their practice with the phone. There was evidence early on in the trial that crack cocaine users would call what they referred to as a, quote, crack phone. That that was a phone that they knew would obtain them drugs from Kendrick Page, crack from Kendrick Page. They testified that frequently people such as Big Head, Alfonso Edmond, Tristan Davis and others would in fact deliver the crack cocaine to them, but they knew it was all coming from Kendrick Page. Frederick Reed then, who was also young like Mr. Armstrong, talked about and testified at trial. He was a charged co-conspirator. He testified that he had been recruited to come up from Shreveport, that when he got to Burlington, Alfonso Edmond immediately introduced him to Mr. Page, and that not long after being introduced to Mr. Page, he was given responsibility of dealing with the crack phone. He was instructed and told that these are the people who call. They just call and say, will you come see me? 
and you go and deliver. He was told by Mr. Page who to deliver to, how much to deliver, and for what price. Can I, can I ask a, a question about the standard of review we should apply to this question, the multiple conspiracies instruction? Both your brief and Armstrong say abuse of discretion. Page, on the other hand, cites the Brugier case and says de novo because it uh, simultaneously denies a legal defense. So what standard of review should we apply to this question? Your Honor, it's our position that the standard of review is abuse of discretion. Uh, in preparing for this argument, I did note that there has been some inconsistency of the application of the standard of review in this area, but I think it has more to do with the facts. If you think about the denial of a jury instruction, that is typically abuse of discretion. The preliminary question, though, is, is the instruction factually supported? And I think where we get more of the we're getting closer to de novo review is a denial of defense. But the initial question is, is it supported by the facts? And if the facts do not support an, an instruction, then there's no argument that it's denying a defense because it's not factually supported. If there's some dispute about whether the facts support it and then the judge refused to give it, that's when I think we get closer to de novo review. But regardless of the standard of review, in this case, it was not factually supported. And the second question, then, is whether the instructions, as given, taken as a whole, accurately established the law or informed the jury of the law. And it was brought up earlier about whether the defendants were then allowed to argue multiple conspiracies. This was specifically discussed with the district court. They were told that they couldn't argue some other conspiracy, but that they certainly were within their right to argue that their defendants were not part of this charged conspiracy. And that's the ultimate question. The case law is clear that when a conspirator is a part of the charged conspiracy and also a part of a second conspiracy, that the evidence, the, the concern is spillover, right? And when a member is actually a member of the charged conspiracy and also a member of a second conspiracy, the risk of prejudice is minimal. That's what the case law suggests that there's little to no risk of prejudice because they were, in fact, a member of the charge conspiracy. And that's what I was getting at when I initially started, that these arguments that they're making are not really that they were in a part of a different conspiracy. Their arguments are that we didn't prove that they were part of the charged conspiracy. And the instructions that Judge Jarvie gave, both the marshalling instruction and his definitions of agreement um, and things like that, explained to the jury that it was the government's burden to prove that each of these individuals was a member of the charged conspiracy. And that if we did not, if we did not prove that they were a member of the charged conspiracy, they needed to find them not guilty. And that's why in this case, given the facts, the multiple conspiracy instruction was not appropriate, and Judge Jarvie's instructions given, taken as a whole, did appropriately recite the law and allowed the defendants to make their arguments on the defense that they were not part of this charged conspiracy. Counsel, isn't that a little circular, though? I mean, um, I think they would come back and say, and I'll just make the argument for them, they'd say, well, I was trying to prove that my client was not part of the charged conspiracy because he was part of a different conspiracy. And by not allowing me to say that there was a different conspiracy or multiple conspiracies, I couldn't prove, I was denied a defense, I couldn't prove that he wasn't a member of this conspiracy. That's, I think, what they would come back and say. And so, 
is it all tied together, really? I mean, the, the, whether, he's a member of the, whether they're a member of the charge conspiracy and whether they're a member of a different conspiracy are all tied together in the way this case was tried. Your Honor, I understand your point. I think the, the distinction that I see is, and I think part of the difficulty in talking about this is there's very, there's, I mean, in fact, no case law that the multiple conspiracies instruction has been improperly denied. All of the case law that was cited is the Eighth Circuit affirming the district court's denial of the multiple conspiracies instruction, particularly in the drug context. In the drug context, you know, the case law on multiple conspiracies is, for example, robberies and murders or something. And so I think that there is a difference of Kendrick Page standing up and saying, I did not agree with Tristan Davis and Breon Armstrong to distribute drugs. I wasn't part of this conspiracy. Now, the multiple conspiracies allows him to say, well, yes, I agreed with this person and I agreed with this person. And I, but you can still argue that I didn't join in an agreement with these two people. And I think that one of the best points of evidence that this is a single conspiracy did come from the wiretap. There was a phone call, an intercepted number of phone calls back and forth um, in October of 2019. The initial call is from Breon Armstrong to Kendrick Page. And Breon asked, Mr. Armstrong asked Mr. Page what Trey, Tristan Davis, did with the, quote, clear shit uh, that was at his house because he has one on the line. Meaning he has a drug deal and he needs the ice methamphetamine. Kendrick Page told him he was going to contact Mr. Davis and get back to him. We then had another intercepted phone call approximately a half an hour later. Breon Armstrong calls Mr. Page back. And in that phone call, you can hear Mr. Davis and Mr. Page talking in the background. Mr. Page says, Trey, Trey, what'd you do with that clear shit that was on your fridge? Nephew needs it. Nephew being Mr. Armstrong. And then there's a conversation about Mr. Davis hiding it in the bushes. Law enforcement goes over to Mr. Davis's house, the Garnett Street house, which again is the basis of the premises enhancement for Mr. Davis, and they find Mr. Armstrong looking in the yard. Now there was testimony at trial that given the nature of this residence, it was difficult for officers to conduct surveillance because they didn't want to blow uh, the wiretap. They didn't want them to know they were listening to their calls, so they had to uh, make it look nonchalant that they were driving past. But all of that evidence, again, shows that these three individuals had an agreement, and the evidence at trial, the facts before the court at trial, were that this agreement had been consistent. And the mere addition of participants, such as Mr. Armstrong or Mr. Reed, does not transform it into a different conspiracy. We look Suppose at the we had a different case, and I'm going to change it just slightly, but um, take away a lot of that evidence. Suppose that, I mean, it's one thing to argue I'm not a member of this conspiracy, but if the government's trying to prove that you deal drugs, one way to prove that I'm not a member of this conspiracy is maybe I was dealing drugs or involved with drugs, not dealing drugs, but involved with drugs with some other conspiracy. Why is that wrong? And maybe the evidence doesn't support it in this case, but it seems to me like there is a place for a multiple conspiracy uh, instruction in, in some circumstances. Uh, if, if I may respond, Your Honor. Yes, you may. Your Honor, I, I think that that is, in fact, what was allowed here. And you didn't need to instruct the jury about that because the, the court instructed the jury that Mr. Page, Mr. Armstrong, and Mr. Davis had to be members of this charge conspiracy. And Mr. Page specifically stood up during closing and said, yes, I dealt drugs, but I wasn't a member of this conspiracy. That's exactly what he was allowed to do within the parameters of the instructions given. And so, again, I think that the instructions given by Judge Jarvie sufficiently stated the law, accurately stated the law, and still allowed the defendants their theory of defense. 
if there are no further questions, I'll see. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Glasgow. Mr. Bertoli, you used all of your time in your first round, but we, we asked you quite a few questions, so we'll give you a minute of rebuttal if you've uh, heard something you feel the necessity to respond to. On the multiple versus single conspiracies, I believe that uh, Judge Strauss has adequately identified the the, uh, the, the culprit here. What's the standard of review? Uh, I uh, uh, allege and, and uh, maintain that the standard of review is de novo uh, because uh, of the involvement of a multiple conspiracy uh, simultaneously um, uh, uh, being the same as the theory of the of the defense by the uh, yeah, but Ms. Glasgow points out that you were each allowed to argue. I may have dealt drugs, but I wasn't part of this particular conspiracy. So, were you really denied your your theory of defense? Well, we're, what we were denied was the uh, was the acknowledgement by the court that that's a valid theory with a supporting instruction to point to during final argument. It's one thing to argue I wasn't part of this but, conspiracy. But it's another thing the to argue that the law... Wait a minute. Let, let me finish the question. The instruction said your client had to be part of this conspiracy to be convicted. And you were able to argue he may have dealt drugs, but he wasn't part of this conspiracy. So I don't see how you were denied your, your theory of defense. Because the jury was um, not afforded the instruction about what to do if they found that uh, that there were multiple conspiracies that that uh, 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 overlapped into the single conspiracy charged by the government. That's that's my position. Is that is that they weren't allowed the the law and an instruction to rely upon. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Patoglu. Mr. Tindall. I see you only have 16 seconds, so I'll be brief. Uh, Mr. Armstrong. You can fill out a minute. I'm sure that won't be difficult for you. <laughs> All right. Um, Mr. Armstrong was actually 18 years old at the time of these events. Uh, his involvement was a matter of weeks, not months or years. I would say that I disagree that there is no evidence whatsoever. Uh, I would point to document uh, 450 in the record, which lays out some of the issues that we raised to the trial court of the facts that supported the, the multiple conspiracies instruction. I think the heart of it is defendants entitled to the instruction that must be sufficiently pre precise and specific to enable the jury to recognize and understand the defense theory. That's what Christie said. And uh, just arguing off of the general conspiracy instruction doesn't do it. That's why we have a stock multiple conspiracies instruction. And I'll leave with Priestcorn, which says that we leave to the jury the task of evaluating the facts and the adequacy of the appellant's theory of defense. And what happened here was the court took that away from us. And we would argue that that's abuse of discretion uh, and requires reversal. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Tindall. Mr. Davis? Do you wish to use any rebuttal time? No, Your Honor. All right. Okay, thank you all of the attorneys who've presented to the court this morning. We appreciate the arguments you've presented and supplementation to the briefing, and we will take the case under advisement. I also wish to acknowledge that the uh, appellant's counsels are appointed under the Criminal Justice Act, and we express our gratitude to you for your willingness to serve uh, in that capacity. Thank you.